If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Support for Green Dreamer comes from our listener patrons, people like you. If it's inspired you, if you're learning a lot from it, if it's become a part of your routine and you'd like to see this independent show continue into 2020, you can support Green Dreamer starting at just $2 per month by going to greendreamer.com support. And thank you so much if you're already a patron of Green Dreamer. So much is missing when you don't have a diverse lens or a diverse perspective. That's like the difference of having a female perspective when it's all male. You don't know until you have a female at the table things that you may not have been aware of. So that goes the same for diversity of ethnicity, diversity of sexuality, all of these different things. We're now living in a society where we're not cookie cutter. We're not in this single box. That was Angelou Azilo, the founder and CEO of Greening Youth Foundation and the author of Engage, Connect, Protect, empowering diverse youth as environmental leaders. Stay tuned as we're about to explore the consequences of having a lack of diversity within federal land management agencies and outdoor apparel companies, how more diverse representation within the environmental movement can transform the ways we approach conservation and engagement with nature, and more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. My earliest memory of how much I appreciated nature and just uh, my love of nature is actually two times I can think of. I, I would say my earliest in my life is my grandma's garden. We grew up in Jersey City, New Jersey, and we lived in a brownstone. And my grandmother lived with myself, my parents, and my two siblings. And 
she had this, and it wasn't really a big garden in the front of the house, but she took such immaculate care of this garden. And I will never forget the four o'clock plants that grew there and just how she tended to this garden and how she taught me how to tend to it and just the how delicate and careful she was. I always will remember that. And I really think that that had a, a, a huge effect on my appreciation, but also my parents own 54 acres of land in upstate New York. So every summer, my siblings and I, along with my parents, would go to this this home. It was actually a very humble home, but it was on all of this land. And that's really where I would say whatever started at that garden in Jersey City with my grandma finished at in upstate New York because from, you know, doing hikes with my family, we have these incredible pictures of, you know, like where we would go on these epic hikes and pick berries and like this little salamander and snake that lived on the side of the house and bats in the in that upstairs attic. Like, you know, all of this really cool stuff that I remember in my childhood, always in my dreams, track back to this home in this land in upstate New York. So I would say that that's really where my love affair with nature started. So today you're the founder and CEO of the Greening Youth Foundation, whose mission is to engage underrepresented youth and young adults while connecting them to the outdoors and careers in conservation. What personal experiences, learnings, or frustrations did you have that made you feel like there was a need to fill this gap? That's a good question. I would say the main reason why the gap became so glaring to me is because once I got old enough to realize that this career path even existed to be an environmentalist or a conservationist or even to do anything in natural resource management, it was after I had become a lawyer. And so it was like this question in my mind as to why I never explored this career pathway. So much so that I eventually asked my parents, like, you saw how much I love the outdoors and nature and all this growing up. So why was that never, you know, why was I never encouraged to pursue a career in this field? And their their answer was very interesting. They were like, well, we just didn't necessarily see that as a place for for us or even you know for our little our little daughter so there to paraphrase the feedback that i got was that they didn't necessarily see the environmental sector as a comfortable or safe job or safe place it's certainly not a place that they would encourage their young person their their daughter to pursue a career pathway in. So it just never even occurred to them that they could pair my interests in terms of the environment with something that I can do as a living. So fast forward 25 years or so, that's probably why, and and I know now as a fact that that's why I was like, well, wait a minute, I need to make sure more black and brown kids understand that this is a career pathway that they could pursue. And not only can they pursue it, but we need them to pursue it. This planet really needs them. Our society really needs them to be thinking about careers in these fields. Traditionally, people of color were less represented in environmental conservation and in this environmental movement. Why do you think it's been this way? And is this largely due to a lack of engagement or a lack of recognition of what's being done? Well, when you think back, I just did a speaking engagement and discussed this issue of, you know, it's not that 
people of color were not engaged with nature. I mean, in fact, when you go back to Africans and Native Americans and, and Hispanic and all these different groups of color, we started, we had like this very special and, and integral connection with land and our livings and hunting and gathering. All of that was centered around land and it was very spiritual for us. So it is very curious how now there's this whole thing of, you know, reconnecting people of color to the land. My response to that is that there was never a disconnection maybe <laughs> to begin with, right. maybe in the perception of how we engage with the land is what people are seeing as, you know, maybe has changed from then and now. But in terms of why this field is so homogeneously white and male is, is really interesting because a lot of that goes back to a few areas that I think, I think marketing, you know, I think that when we see people on television or in magazines, publications, or what have you doing things in the outdoors and, and just recreating, it's, we have this certain prototype of what that person looks like. And it often is not a person of color. So that has this effect of, I always quote the um, astronaut Sally Ride, who says, you have to see it to be it because that has an effect on a child, a brown child, a child of color, seeing these images of who should, quote unquote, be out in these outdoor spaces, recreating or even working. So if you don't see an image of yourself out there, whether it's photographed or even when you go to these places, then you're in internalizing that that's not a place for you. So then that starts this perpetual cycle. So if you're thinking that that's not necessarily a place for me to, to, to recreate or to work, then those people who are in those spaces are not necessarily doing the outreach to young people or people of color and, and perhaps are aiding in this whole notion that there are other things that more dire issues and fundamental issues that people of color need to be focused on. You know, they don't really have time to deal with the environmental issues, which in fact, we know is not true. All sorts of bond referendums in California and other states have shown that Latinos and people of color definitely vote for the protection of environmental and natural spaces, cultural spaces, and, you know, so that these places are there for generations to come. So I really call bullshit on a lot of that. <laughs> <laughs> right. And it's really interesting to note how there's this whole trending sustainable lifestyle movement going on that I feel like is largely dominated by white people as well. When, in fact, our indigenous peoples and communities of color have long been living very sustainably for yeah. some just because they that's what they had and people were frugal and lived with what they what they had access to. And for a lot of people who live much more closely with their lands, that's just the way of life. That's just the, exactly, you hit it right on the nose. I mean, it's it's just the way of life for us. So like all this new nomenclature around it is exactly just that. It's like new terminologies or what have you. But if we talk to our grandmothers and great grandmothers, they'd be like, wait, you mean when I, the way I preserve this fruit in a jar, there's an, a new name for that, you know, like, <laughs> you know what I mean? So we've done all this type composting, all that kind of stuff has been done. So none of this is new, but it is introduced, it's reintroducing this next generation to it. Cause I do think that young people 
aren't necessarily seeing these career opportunities or even having access to these places where they can recreate. And there's a disconnect there. And that's one of the things that we work on at Greener Youth Foundation, bridging that gap so that these communities and young people of color can see that not only are there job opportunities there for you in natural resource management, outdoor recreation, outdoor retail, conservation organization, that whole field, but it's also really rewarding to be out in these beautiful places. It's good for your health. It has a lot of um, benefits that I think that communities of color sometimes are not necessarily tapped into right away because of these barriers that have been put up. You recently published a book, Engage, Connect, Protect, Empowering Diverse Youth as Environmental Leaders. And the premise reads, while concern about the state of our land, air, and water continues to grow, there is a widespread belief that environmental issues are primarily of interest to wealthy white communities. Engage, Connect, Protect explores this, explodes this myth, uh, revealing the deep and abiding interest that African Americans, Latino, and Native American communities, many of whom live in degraded and polluted parts of the country, have in our collective environment. End quote. As an example, an extension of this, you say that for too long, federal land management agencies were focused on one demographic, middle class white males. What do you think may have been the impact of this lack of diversity within environmental agencies like the National Park Service, Forest Service, Bureau of Land Management and so forth? I mean, it's having an incredible effect. We're feeling those effects literally as we speak now because there's been such a narrow focus on one particular demographic, as you stated, white male. And this is probably going back to, you know, Teddy Roosevelt days of who should be working in these federal land management agencies. Now that a lot of these people are retiring, I think the stat is that by 2021, like a close to 70 percent of the workforce is going to be retiring. And, and it's not that much different for the USDA Forest Service. And you can just go down the line. So a lot of the people that are working in these fields are, are white, male or female, and they are retiring. And because they have not really thought about or haven't figured out ways to create these pipelines of diverse audiences so that they could bring on the this new wave of a workforce they're really in at a desperate state reaching out to and that's where you know partners like Greeny Youth Foundation and Outdoor Afro, Hispanic Access Foundation, Latino Outdoors. There's a lot of different organizations now that are being engaged by these federal agencies so that they we could help them bring diverse people that might be interested in working in these fields to these these places. Oftentimes, as you said, communities of color are more subject to living in places with worse air quality, water quality, soil quality, and so forth. Do you think this has anything to do with the traditional demographics within environmental agencies, or is this just a result of the systemic racial and economic injustice that exists? Yeah, no, I think I think it's the latter. You know, unfortunately, it's all these systems and, and that are just built upon each other of and racism, basically, that caused whether it's gentrification or, you know, just name it, which is causing people of color to live in these very vulnerable communities and are usually areas that are really, when you talk about environmental justice, I mean, there's all sorts of environmental hazards in these communities where people of color live. 
which is why, you know, I'm constantly and our team is constantly getting out there and, and stressing the importance of awareness and learning about what are these hazards that may be in your community and getting involved in voting so that you can do something about these things that are, whether it's companies relocating or locating to your communities because it's maybe cheaper rent there to bring all sorts of treatment plants and so forth. So it's education, you know, making sure communities are being educated and aware of what possible, what they could possibly do, who they could work with so that their families are not in jeopardy. On the flip side of public agencies, you say that the same homogenous demographic is also reflected in the private sector, especially you looked at the outdoor apparel industry. What do we miss out on when employees and executives of outdoor apparel companies also lack diversity? Would this then be reflected in their marketing and messaging, encouraging their their customers to explore the outdoors more? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, so much is missing when you don't have a diverse lens or a diverse perspective. Not to mention what we usually do in, when talking to our new private partners in these sectors is say, I mean, we go straight to, you know, it's a business. So we go straight to their bottom line, which is we know that you want to increase market share. So there are people that look different from you that are interested in your product. So that is the most baseline argument that we make for diversity in terms of marketing and outreach. But the other thing is having diverse people on their teams and as a part of their workforce brings innovation to the teams and to some of the products and some of the things that they're designing. That's like the difference of having a female perspective when it's all male. You don't know until you have a female at the table things that you may not have been aware of. So that goes the same for, you know, ethnicity, diversity of ethnicity, diversity of sexuality, all of these different things. We're now living in a society where we're not cookie cutter. We're not all like in this single box. And I think that that's where the danger comes in when we we start to look at things and who should be working in these places, who should be wearing these products, who should be wearing the jacket or the pair of shoes and making sure that it's always that person. To me, that's so extremely limiting. And I think that continuing to think that way will cause your company to become irrelevant sooner rather than later. Mm. So really for for their bottom line as well, which is what honestly a lot of companies only care about, uh, right. by, by having more diversity on their teams, they're able to then speak to a wider audience and ultimately sell more in the end. Right. I mean, some of these companies, yes, they do it because they know it's the right thing and they're concerned about environmental issues, they're concern, concerned about social issues, and I get that. But ultimately, all of these different brands are companies, for-profit companies. So I know that that has to resonate with them, even if it's not something that they're publicly saying. I know you've had personal experiences struggling with a lack of racial diversity in the workplace and also a lack of willingness from others to talk about race. What do you see as being the core of why there's this discomfort still in 2019 oh. with acknowledging race in work environments and what what is its role in furthering systemic injustice at large? Oh my gosh, that is such a big question. Such a big question. It's something I think about a lot, you know, because I'm like, 
what is it going to take? I mean, I feel like I have a mentor, Audrey Peterman, who she talks about the work that she has done, written books, Legacy on the Land with her husband, connecting people of color to the outdoors and some of the barriers and obstacles that they faced 30 years ago. And it's like the same discussion is starting to be like a running joke with some people, you know, like, oh, okay, now you're working on this, you know, so I really am at a point, and I, I think that we have to do some deep, di- a deep dive in feeling uncomfortable and moving beyond talk. Because what we're finding is, you know, we are doing a lot of work preparing these young people to go into these different fields and to go into these different spaces where they may be one of the of few of color but work isn't being done on the other side. So they're not ready to receive these diverse young people. Mm -hmm. So this cultural piece, to your point, like it it, it requires a lot of dissecting and, you know, we really have to unpack like why, I mean, it doesn't help that we're living in a climate right now where there's a lot of vitriol, there's a lot of the divisiveness as it relates to race, but we have to to work to kind of bring this back together. You know, I, I really just recently was on another panel talking about the importance of engaging different communities. And it quickly went back to this race and uh, them, you and us, and why aren't we being included? You know, so we have to really move this race discussion further. And I think the way that we do that is to really ask people that are, are a little bit more aware of these dynamics quote unquote woke or whatever term you want to use. (laughs) But, you know, if you really are, then, and this is to white people, let's move. Like you can, you can't be afraid to have conversations with your colleagues and your peers. That's going to make you or them uncomfortable. We have to start moving outside of these circles of comfortability so that we can really go deeper on the subject. Otherwise, 25 years from now, Our kids and our kids' kids are going to be having the same conversation. And I think that our planet is in peril right now. And we can't afford to be in these silos, having these discussions and still not working together. So if we really want to effectuate change, we have to start figuring out ways to work with each other and move this needle forward. Do you think this work culture and frustration from underrepresented people with their experiences in the workplace then leads them to not even want to work there in the first place, thus furthering the lack of diversity among certain companies and organizations? And if so, what has been the result of people just opting out of working at these places altogether and not wanting for it to be their professional path? Well, the thing is, I I really haven't seen that. You know, I mean, there's a small percentage, yes, of of people who may be frustrated and have been trying to get into these different fields and getting doors slammed in their face. But the good thing from that is that they're starting their own companies. They're they're starting their own businesses. So that's another area. Like, you know, entrepreneurialism is is really big and growing. And I think statistics show that people of color hire people of color more so than not. So new entrepreneurs starting businesses in these fields are usually the ones that are going to bring in more diverse people to work with them. So that I mean, that frustration is leading to good things in terms of starting new businesses within the field. And then the other for those that to your point of 
don't want to work there at all because of frustration. I find that people of color are the most, particularly black people that, I mean, I'm speaking from experience, are the most forgiving people, you know? So I, I find that despite this history, the ugly history that we know exists, I think that a lot of people of color are understanding the the bigger picture and the ramifications of us not working in this natural resource management field and are you know looking for opportunity. Like when you've been left out of a workforce and when you're really just trying to get on a career pathway so that you can make a living to support yourself and your family, there are a lot of things that you will excuse, but you're just really wanting to get into a field that you know feels good, but also can take care of you. So that's why, you know, I think that no one is going to be giving up, up, giving up on this field because it's just too important. On the entrepreneurship piece, there's a beautiful quote from your book. There are reams of data showing that entrepreneurship among African-American women is flying off the charts. This feeling of us not being included or accepted is giving birth to wonderful new businesses, end quote. What would and can this entrepreneurial trend mean for our relationship with nature and for sustainability? Oh, man. I mean, so that's the thing, like raising the awareness about these environmental issues and then showing the gaps for a lot of these young, brilliant minds, I think is going to really breed this new wave of businesses in this green collar uh, economy or green collar jobs, whatever you want to call it. Because, you know, when you look at solar technicians, urban farmers, landscape management, biofuel, like there's just so alternative energy. There's so much that needs to be done in this field with all these different types of jobs and companies. So I just think that the opportunity is almost limitless. Unfortunately, it's it's kind of a weird thing. These are jobs that preserve or restore the environment. Given what we see is happening right now with the environment, we need all of that plus some, you know, Mm -hmm. so we need people who are maybe trying to come up with ideas. How do we make our cars cleaner, fixing the recycling system debacle? What's going on right now? Who's going to take this material? We can't tell people to stop recycling, but we know that there's an issue right now where this stuff is going. So we need innovative minds coming up with ideas with how to deal with some of these major challenges that we're facing as a society. Right. We definitely have so many systemic issues that we have to address, and we can't really fix them by doing things the same way. We have to kind of step outside of that and have brilliant and innovative young minds tackling some of these things. Exactly. We can't do the same thing and expect a different result. We all know what that means. (laughs) And to support this, part of the Greening Youth Foundation's work is to connect underrepresented youth with careers in conservation, including increasingly in the federal land management agencies as well, as you mentioned earlier. How are you going about doing this in practice? And how do you think having more inclusion and diversity within land management and earth stewardship can evolve or transform the ways that we go about conservation? Yeah, no, the, the way that the way that we do it is, I mean, is really all that's a big part of my job as a CEO is getting out there and telling people about the work that we're doing. And the good thing is our reputation has been preceding us. So because this is like an untapped well of talent, we're starting to be known 
on the student side as with HBCUs, tribal colleges, and Hispanic-serving institutions as a place to go if you're interested in the field. And then on the federal land management agency side, we're also known now as an organization that has access to all these young people. So we have been able to, and the uh, the second part of your question, I think by having more diversity, it'll have a ripple effect. So by include, by having more people of color, kind of like what I was saying earlier, involved in these federal land management agencies, these are public lands. So these are lands that are owned by us, by taxpayers. So it, it will affect future generations by having everybody engaged in federal land management agency work, because now we're seeing these places as our own. So we're stewards for these lands. So jobs and different things, we're going to them more. We are protecting them. There's, There's just a totally different lens when we are there and actively working at these different sites. So it's very critical for them to just stay around to have more diversity there, because it just brings in totally different perspectives of how we maintain them and how we continue to be stewards of them. Are there any current approaches that we go about conservation that you feel like more so reflects this white masculine mindset? I think this still goes back to our view of who is engaging the outdoors the right way. Usually when we see pictures of a person, the, this beautiful vista and a single man with a big beard looking over, you know, this cliff or looking at a mountain or something, that image just says so much to me because it's like, first of all, communities of color, you know, we are communal. So when when we're out in, in the outdoors and parks or whatever it is, it's usually with big groups. Mm. So whether it's family reunions or barbecues or whatever it is we're doing, fishing or whatever it is, it's not usually in solitude. So just that is a very big difference. And even the thing things that we do in the outdoors. So if we're not rafting or tubing or, you know, the different thing. And I'm not, there's nothing wrong with those things, but that's just a way that you may, or one group may engage in a river or a stream of water, but another group may fish or do something. So I'm just saying we, we, this diversity theme has to go through all of this. Like it can't, we just have to open up this view and it can't be the single story of, who's out there and what you do out there. So we, by having more people at the table, we'll learn of different ways. Perhaps we can learn different things you can do with trees or, you know, because of bringing in a lot of Native Americans and they were the very beginning, they were there the very beginning. So learning how they do prescribed burns for wildland firefighting, we learn from each other. So that's why we, there's no way that we can even begin to say only one group is the one that should be enjoying these spaces. Well, as we look forward with our many ecological challenges that we need to address, what do you think we'll need most to be able to reach that level of diversity that's that's needed in the environmental movement from the private to the public sector so that we can come up with the most inclusive and equitable solutions that will serve the needs of everybody? We need to really develop true public-private partnerships. There are so many projects. There's a lot of organizations that are working to engage communities of color 
in various ways. And then the private sector benefits from a lot of the work that these organizations are doing, whether they're buying their product or whatever, whatever it is. So we need to bring those together because there's a need for resources to continue to do the work, this social good that, you know, is being done by a lot of these nonprofit organizations. And then learning from each other. Like I said before, we can't, I can't stress that enough, the importance of cultural awareness and understanding the nuances of different groups of people and just being open-minded when it comes to different projects and in different programs, not having this top-down approach on everything because there's so much that we don't know and being vulnerable and admitting that there's so much that you don't know. I'm still learning. You know, I, I'm a, I call myself a teacher and a learner because I'm, there's so much that I have gained through my life experience. So therefore I, I'm now, I've learned all that, but I have to now teach it, but we never turn off that click to say, okay, I've, I've learned enough now. So <laughs> I'm just going to now teach everything. No, I don't, I don't, I think we all have to take that approach. To close, what are some ways that we as individuals can support more diverse representation and engagement in the environmental movement so that we can bring more people together to achieve our shared goals? I would say just when you see, and that's another thing that in the book, I have actually created a database of organizations around the country. And it, of course, it's it's an organic document. It's a living document and it could be added on to, but organizations that are doing, diverse organizations doing work in this space. So I would say wherever, whenever you can hold up these organizations, volunteer your time there, support these organizations and bring awareness to them in whatever circle that you are in. Because one of the things that I realized a little disillusion about doing this work, when I first thought I was like, all these young people, once they go through this program, they're going to want to be environmentalists. They're going to do all these different careers in the environment. And now, 13 years later, I see that not every single person is going to have that environment in their name or being a wildlife biologist or what have you. They may not have that title, but through this exposure, through programs like Green Youth Foundation, their lens will forever be changed. So whether whether they are an architect or a hairstylist or a dentist, there may be a more environmentally sustainable and responsible way of disposing with the equipment. When they're designing something, they're going to do it now with the lens towards sustainability. So that's what I'm now pushing towards. Whatever field you go in, you must take that step because each one of us plays a part. It's not at a point where we can say it's too far gone. I'm an optimist. And I just believe that if everybody has their one contribution and does their one thing, that we can make it, we can make a difference. So through changing the lens of these young people so that they know that their steps are critical and are important and will make change. I think that we're doing our part, which is all I can do at this point is keep trying. That's so beautiful. And I feel like that is how we shift culture is when everybody across all industries have this environmental consciousness built into them, because then it's not about environmentalists versus everybody else, but everybody just being environmentalists in whatever we do. Exactly. And that sense of responsibility. Absolutely.
Before we go into our final five, I wanted to let you know that you can now pre-order your 2020 Green Dreamer planners at greendreamer.com slash shop with the passcode THRIVE. If you're not interested and don't need nor use physical planners, do skip this message and thank you so much for putting up with my continual updates. But if you'd like to learn more and see if the planner is suitable to your needs, I wanted to give you an opportunity to make your pre-order before I open it up publicly because as soon as I get the finished planners from my local bindery, I'll be shipping them out personally in the order that they're placed. You'll be able to find out all the information online, so I won't ramble on here with the details. Again, that's greendreamer.com shop and enter the passcode THRIVE to browse and make your pre-order. For now, to our final five. Let's Let's power through. What's an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? Ah, I would say Dr. Wangari Mathai's memoir called Unbowed. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? This too shall pass. (laughs) (laughs) What's one thing you're working on right now for your health? I'd say balance and release. What are you working on right now to elevate your positive impact for our planet? Teaching by example. And what makes you most hopeful for our planet and world at the moment? Mm, My children. Children in general, but certainly my children. Green Dreamer, to learn more and stay updated on Anjalu's work, you can head to www.gyfoundation.org and you can follow them on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Greening Youth. I'll have this linked in the show notes as well that you can find at greendreamer.com in case you're on the go at the moment. Anjalu, where can we find your book? What are some ways our listener can get involved with your work and support your organization? Yes, yeah, so you can. My book is available through Amazon. And that's Engage, Connect, Protect, Empowering Diverse Youth as Environmental Leaders. You could certainly go to www.gyfoundation.org and sign up to volunteer if you'd like, if you're nearby or near one of our sites, or donate if you like. Get involved anywhere you can, or even if you want to get involved with a local organization that you think we might be interested in connecting with in some kind of way, reach out to me. My email address is Anjalu at gyfoundation.org. Would love to hear from you. Thank you. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your expertise with us. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? That together we can effectuate change. We can do it. Green Dreamer, thank you so much for tuning in. To support the show, access extended content, and join our Green Dreamer network, you can head to greendreamer.com support for more information. To receive weekly solutions-driven news around ecological regeneration and intersectional sustainability, you can sign up to our free Green Dreamer Weekly Digest at greendreamer.com. And if you'd like to come say hey to let me know that you're tuning in, you can find me on Instagram at greendreamerpodcast and at Shane. Finally, as we're wrapping up here, just remember, now more than ever, our planet needs your light to thrive. So if you haven't yet, hit subscribe and I will catch you later, Green Dreamer.